Welcome back, everybody, to the Messy City Podcast. Mike Keen, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Mike uh, is joining us from uh, South Bend, Indiana, and uh, we're going to have a, a fun conversation here today uh, about uh, his efforts in South Bend, which are really uh, pretty incredible, pretty unique, uh, I feel like. And uh, uh, I'm really I'm really happy that you could uh, join me today to, to do this one. I'm thrilled to be here, Kevin. Thank you so much. Well, Mike, I, I became uh, aware of you uh, really through the work that you've done with uh, Monty Anderson and a lot of the the crew from the incremental development world. Uh, and uh, I, I, obviously, you have a really interesting backstory. Uh, not a whole lot of people are former professors, I guess, that uh, get into real estate development. So, why don't you tell a little bit about uh, uh, who you you know what your background is and how you came to this kind of crazy world of doing uh, incremental development? Well, I, I I got my PhD in University of Notre Dame here in South Bend. What's brought me here? Uh, geez, back in the early eighties, uh, and then I uh, went to work as a professor of sociology at Indiana University South Bend. Uh, I had an almost thirty year career there. Uh, the last uh, eight or nine years, I had actually moved from sociology to sustainability studies. Uh, so I helped build uh, the first uh, triple bottom line, ecologically friendly, socially inclusive, economically sound, sustainability studies, standalone bachelor's degree in the state of Indiana. And put hmm. that together uh, uh, in uh, 2008. And around 2016, 17, it was largely in place. So I thought, okay, uh, the graduate student helped me, uh, Krista Bailey. She was ready to take the program over. It had been that long. Couldn't have done it without her. So I thought, I'm going to I'm gonna go out uh, and I'm going to become a sustainability consultant. And oh, by the way, I'm going to help Dwayne Borkholder, who is the president of something called New Energy Homes, who I had met while I was running the program, Sustainability Studies, build one of his net zero homes. He had found a way to build homes to produce as much energy as they use. Uh, using a post-frame building system, but it was like in uh, the sort of the Apple iPhone. Nobody understood it. So I said, well, we'll build one in my neighborhood. And I said, Dwayne, if you can't sell that for what it's going to cost us to build, I'll buy it and I can rent it out. Now, I knew he couldn't do that because I live in a uh, neighborhood, a mixed neighborhood, that the appraisal gap was such that it was going to cost us $130,000 to build that house. And uh, I would have been able to, he would have been able to sell for 110 at the time. But the mm. problem was around the corner was a, a really old beat up uh, former flower shop that was kind of probably being used as a drug house. Uh, and so I thought, well, we need to fix that up. And we had a whole bunch of vacant lots that were a mess. And I thought, well, we need to pick a few of those up. Uh, and within six months of leaving the university, I had done one consulting gig, but I owned seven vacant lots. I had a commitment to build one house and I was supposed to fix up a uh, old abandoned uh, flower shop, and I didn't know how to do a pro forma. And so our <laughs> economic uh, development director, guy by name Scott Ford, said, Mike, you need to go meet this group called the Incremental Development Alliance. Uh, he used to uh, work with Jim Kuman. And so I went up to Flint, Michigan. I met uh, Jim. I met Monty. And later on, I met Bernice Radel. And I said, we got to bring these folks to South Bend because this is what we need. And so I eventually found a way to get him to come to South Bend about seven years ago. And we've been working together since then. They've been my mentor. And quite frankly, uh, 
what I've done is purely based on my ability to learn from them and the mentoring that they've provided me. So when you, when you're sitting there with like seven vacant lots and other stuff that you're looking at, are, are you, does that feel overwhelming at that point? And you know, like, what at have I point, done? It, a little bit, but not too much because at the point, um, I, I knew I could take care of the lots. Uh, I wasn't a construction guy, but, but I, I, you know, fixed up my own houses and stuff like that. And I knew I could hire a few people to do the bakery building and the new house that wasn't going to be my deal. Um, so that, you know, uh, I didn't know any better at the time, but then when we went to try to build the new house on the lot, there had been, uh, 13 houses on this half block and, uh, hmm. there were now six left and we went to replace those. It took 36 variances and are a little bit over $10,000. And I'm thinking, oh, hmm. Of course, when I went to Flint, they told us, hey guys, most cities is gonna cost you somewhere around five to eight or nine variances to build what used to be there. Uh, well, maybe it's better I didn't know that before I get started. <laughs> I might not have done that. Um, and then things just kind of started from there. I mean, one of the things that uh, Monty you know, has, has, has taught us all is you got this thing called the flywheel. And you just get started and it start. you start a little bit, you try to start on a smaller project. Uh, and I had a little bit bigger commitment than we might start with, but I was basically doing a renovation of an existing building uh, and doing a little bit of the time. Uh, I swore I was never going to become a landlord, but I was about to sell the building and the people ducked out. So I had to become a landlord. I swore I was never going to borrow money. I thought I would just use retirement funding. And then after Monty uh, taught me how to do a pro forma, I looked at the return on investment. I thought, well, that was dumb. So then I started taking out loans. <laughs> so it was kind of one step at a time uh, as things came along and mm -hmm. opportunities came along. So, you know, let's talk about the context of this a little bit. I mean, you're in South Bend, uh, Indiana. This is not exactly, you know, Austin or Nashville or, you know, some booming, uh, trendy metropolis. Um, what, what's the context of the neighborhood? What, what had been going on in this location and maybe broader in the community for the last, you know, couple of decades? Well, you know, South Bend was, uh, uh, you know, Studebaker, right? When, Stude le when Studebaker left South Bend, uh, economic and labor historians talk about that being the beginning of the rest ball. You know, we were in some sense, the first city to rust, uh, and uh, but as a result of that, we were also one of the early cities to start to try to figure out how to struggle itself back. Uh, but when I came to South Bend and I, I lived in the very neighborhood I'm working in right now uh, uh, in 1981, uh, this little area in the near northwest neighborhood, we call it, uh, and we're now calling it our little area, which used to be a commercial node, Portage Midtown. When I came here and I lived a few blocks away from this spot where I'm living right now. Um, there was a grocery store, a hardware store, a flower shop, a butcher shop, a pizza place, a slot car shop, mower repair. There was a commercial center there. It was the neighborhood node. And over the next, uh, uh, between, say, when I got here in 81, and I would say uh, early 1990s, uh, late 1990s, we just watched it slowly disappear to the point where every single commercial element that was there went away. And then some of them eventually got knocked down and turned into uh, vacant lots. Uh, and so, uh, but the other thing is 
is there's always been kind of this grittiness in, in South Bend. And so I think one of the things that we learned early on was that we're not going to get Studebaker back. We're not going to get the big factories back. We have to diversify beyond industrialization. And so South Bend, you know, because of its location near Chicago, uh, kind of the biggest city in the northern part of the state, uh, with, you know, University of Notre Dame and an Indiana University campus, we began to see education, uh, medicine uh, began to be uh, a big medical uh, center uh, and, and some other areas, uh, IT uh, started to be something that began to grow here. So, and we saw a sort of diversification, uh, smaller businesses that had always been here, just had a struggle to keep on uh, surviving. And then we had a, a visionary mayor by the name of Steve Lickey. That's not the one people usually think of. Uh, but uh, he spent, uh, you know, over a decade and a half helping to build the infrastructure. And people really didn't see that. But it was an amazing amount of work. Hmm. And then another uh, visionary mayor, uh, uh Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg comes in, mm -hmm. and basically Pete was able to really build upon that. Uh, Steve really focused on strengthening the neighborhood. Pete focused on uh, trying to kind of re-strengthen the downtown. Uh, and we've always had this funny kind of fight between the people saying you're doing too much in the neighborhood, not enough downtown. You're doing too much in the downtown, not enough in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. What I've always felt is you got to have both. Uh, and between the two of those two, they really, um, you know, put a South Bend uh, – uh, on a path uh, towards innovation uh, and and allowing those folks who are on the ground uh, to really, you know, build it up. Yeah. So the you said the first mayor, Steve, he focused a lot on infrastructure. What what all do you mean by that? Like what specifically did he tackle? Well, uh, uh, things like um, trying to uh, deal with the sewer systems. Uh, we had a $900 million, you know, sewer water uh, uh, separation problem. Uh, he was able to sort of uh, deal with that and also uh, uh, do it in a very uh, creative way with a, a, a guy by the name of Gary Gillott, who was our director of public works and save us about $300 million there. Um, doing connectivity, uh, starting some of the early bike paths uh, and beginning to uh, uh, put those into place, uh, focusing on building the parks and also strengthening neighborhoods by supporting neighborhood organizations, helping to create uh, uh, and support something called the uh, NRC Neighborhood Resource Center, not-for-profit, training up neighborhood organizations because Steve came up through the neighborhood. Steve was a carpenter. He was working in, he, he lives just a couple blocks from me. He was working here uh, uh, building houses and, and doing uh, renovation uh, uh, with uh, another CDC. Uh, and uh, when he became a council member and then became mayor, he continued that work. And then uh, when, when Pete came into office, uh, Pete could see that uh, we also uh, needed to continue to, to work on downtown and economic stuff was beginning to turn around. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, happened under Pete uh, was a world-class uh, park. Uh, Steve had started to help connect the parks, but uh, Pete helped create a world-class park downtown. Uh, and we began to see kind of just the urban remigration that was happening. So we began to see new units uh, begin to build up downtown. We almost had no residential mm -hmm. units downtown. And in the last six or seven years, probably I'd say another 150, 250 units have come up. Uh, quite frankly, downtown has uh, got some, some very good quality, but some very expensive residential units that didn't exist uh, uh, when I first came to South Bend. South Bend downtown was just... It was just almost empty. How, how big is South Bend? 
hundred uh, and three hundred four thousand. We had actually uh, uh, began to lose our population after Studebaker loss. We had over one hundred thirty-five thousand population uh, uh, fell back to just under a hundred thousand. In the last census, we've seen the first growth. We've had a three percent growth, but about an addition of three thousand. But the big impact of that was because of that loss. Um, we ended up with you know several thousand vacant and abandoned houses, and so. Uh, hmm. uh, what one of the things that uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg did is he created something called a thousand houses in a thousand days, where basically he committed to either uh, uh, putting those into hands of somebody to renovate them or knocking them down. Well, about 380 got put in the hands of people for renovation, about 600, uh, 720, uh, 620 ended up uh, being knocked down. Uh, the challenge mm-hmm. with that is that means that just in my north, 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 northwest neighborhood, over 500 vacant lots. And if you take a look at the tax sale maps in South Bend, it is just dotted with red. And so one of the challenges is that uh, while well, Mayor Buttigieg created a plan to sort of get rid of a lot of blight uh, uh, and controversy in some cases, but many of those houses were just really a mess. The problem is at the time they didn't create a plan of what we're going to do uh, to rebuild that. Uh, and when uh, we started to do some of the small scale development here in town and, and you know, got uh, Monty and Jim and Bernice to, you know, come over and start to do some consulting and teaching us. One of the things we discovered was that there was a lot of things in place that were keeping it from being developed. First of all, large scale developers don't want to come into these neighborhoods because they can't get a block. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, they're either downtown or they're out in the exurbs, right? This is happening all around the country. Uh, then, so you're kind of relying on people in the neighborhoods. And we already had some neighbors who were just, you know, out of desperation beginning to do this. But when I began to get involved, you know, like I say, the first problem I run into is I need 36 variances to put five or six houses back where they hmm. used to be. You know, that's, a, that, that's, you know, that's what we call brain damage. That is going to slow the process down. And then I was getting to build a tiny house on a little 50 by 50 square foot lot. And at the time, this was about five or six years ago, that was going to probably cost me $120,000, $140,000 for the whole project. And then I find out I've got my sewer 17 feet below the ground, and it's going to cost me at the time $17,000. Well, that was the whole margin. And so we had to move that project. But then later, the city came around and said, well, we're going to start a a $20,000 reimbursement, sewer reimbursement project for lots of these Mm -hmm. kinds of neighborhoods. Um, And then another problem that we find is if you're trying to build new and you're not renovating, well, you can spend seven to $10,000 on architectural drawings and stuff like that. Again, that that is a a big barrier. So that's when uh, they began to work. in that uh, particular case uh, with us uh, to, um, uh, you know, and Jim Kuman and, and, and Jennifer Settles to uh, create the pre-approved plan so that now you can go down and get a set of plans that if you build to those plans, basically they're pre-approved and you're ready to go. So what we've had is this kind of working partnership between uh, the small scale development community uh, that the city has come to recognize is as an aggregate, uh, one of their largest developers and the only one who's doing significant work in the neighborhoods, they've begun to see that that's a serious economic development force that we need to take seriously. One of the challenges was when it was just us out there by ourselves, not knowing each other, then the city would look at this or that person. Even some people who did you know, 10, 15 renovations, they wouldn't, they wouldn't see that. But when we begin to take a look at the fact that now there's maybe 
17 to 22 of us that kind of know each other, connect each other. And we're working on several hundred properties, uh, you know, have either done it in the past or doing it. All of a sudden, you begin to see that, gee, there's some power here. What can we do to begin to harness um, and support that ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, the, the things you describe, uh, there's a there's a lot there I, I want to talk more about, but it also kind of strikes me that this is so, it's such a familiar story to so many um, Midwestern and upper Midwestern uh, communities, uh, especially those that had a big industrial base, you know, at some point, you know, parts of Kansas City, I, I feel like I could yeah. say the same exact story about that, where we had large uh, industrial uh, economies uh, neighborhoods that existed to support those, that industry. And then when the industry went away, the neighborhoods went into decline. And so there's this, this, this constant, you know, battle and discussion about what do we do about vacant houses, vacant property? How do we build a new economy? How do we create something in the, in the wake of, uh, this economy changing? So I, I say all that to say, because I think what, what you are doing and what your group has done, uh, is is a I think a great inspiration to people in similar communities really all over the country uh, that that you know whether it's just a neighborhood in a larger city or maybe the whole city. Well, it it really is every place, and you know, and and that's why we call it neighborhood evolution because we're really talking about the need to sort of once again evolve. We did, um, but I would I would suggest as you've observed that you know for some cities it was and particularly Midwest and places like that. Um, it was sort of the industrial deindustrialization and other elements, but in many other mm-hmm. cities, larger cities, inner city neighborhoods, redlining and the uh, the theft yeah. of intergenerational wealth, you know, was the force mm-hmm. that drove uh, uh, the uh, destruction and deterioration of those neighborhoods. And then the other thing is often overlooked is that the challenges that our rural communities have been having across the entire country, you know, uh, with the transformation from agriculture to industrial. Uh, a society and now towards information society, a lot of our rural communities are struggling. So for different social, economic and international reasons of trade, uh, we see these things happening. Uh, but in, in, in our estimation, the answer exists in those cities. You know, we always yeah. like to say the cavalry is not coming. And I get calls a lot and I know the rest of us do too. And they say, well, we don't have anybody who's doing development. And we say, we know you do. They are there. You have to find them. Because what happened is when I started, I didn't know anybody was doing this. I helped a neighbor across the street and we, we redid a house. We didn't think of ourselves as small scale developers. We just thought there's a house here. It needs to be fixed. It's killing us. And even if we just get out what we put in it, we've helped ourselves. We've helped the neighborhood. When I began to, you know, uh, met Monty and, and Jim and Bernice and, and we started to work here, all of a sudden I began to see there was already five or six people in my neighborhood, uh, individuals that had been doing projects. And then I began to meet a few others uh, around the city. But again, we didn't know each other. We weren't talking. And what we did in, in starting to work with the city to start to do the uh, the uh, incremental developments uh, and, and, and in our neighborhood evolution uh, consulting and um first our workshops and, and, and now our 12-step uh, meetings, people started coming out of the woodwork. Either people who were doing this, who weren't connected in, doing it out of hook and crook with credit cards on a monthly basis in neighborhoods everybody was overlooking, um, or people wanting to get started 
of all ages. I mean, I just was meeting with a young kid who's like 24 years old, just came back uh, and, and is wanting to get going. But I've also got folks who are sort of like me, you know, getting to the point where I call it second life, you know, has had a long life, been successful <laughs> in another field, come back uh, and, and can get engaged. And, you know, some of those folks want to be developers. Some of them just want to support the ecosystem. We need everybody. So how did, how did you find, how did you connect with those first people, um, you know, once, well, once you started a, going, and, you know? Yeah, it, it's, 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 first of all, it's, it's, it's really hard, but it's even simpler. The hard part is you've got to ask people to come and meet with you. People don't often like to ask. The simple part is once you make to ask, people want to show up. So what happened to me was I was always a community organizer. That's just been my background. And so whenever I've got involved in anything, I've brought people together. Uh, and so when uh, uh, Monty and Jim and then Bernice started coming, every time if one of them would show up in town, I would have reception at my house. And it started out with seven people sitting in my living room. And we would just talk about what they were doing, what we were going, so they could come uh, and get to meet, uh, you know, Monty, Jim, Bernice, uh, or whoever else that we might come in. Um, and that group started to grow. Uh, and it wasn't just developers. As a matter of fact, most of us who were coming to the meetings weren't developers. There was some people from the city. There were some people from local not-for-profit neighborhood organizations. There were influencers from the neighborhoods, occasionally a banker, some entrepreneurial training folks. Um, and each time folks came over, I would use a very simple instrument. I put their name and their email in a spreadsheet. So the next time we had an event, we would send that out. And oh, by the way, bring anybody you think might be interested. I've kept that spreadsheet till today. And now there's over 200 names on that. Now, hmm. probably about 20 of those, 22 or so, are active developers. But the ecosystem is over 200. And every time yeah. we have a meeting, uh, we put that out there. And now we're getting people not at my house anymore because now the city's helping to organize it. Uh, we're getting 70, 80 people show up. The mayor, the council members come and say, hey, we're glad you're here. So when you say developers, let's talk a little bit about that. What What is a developer? Who who are the, the individuals that are coming to these that call themselves developers? Like, what are they actually developing? Well, uh you know, we always call them farmers, right? Because what we say is you commit to a place yeah. and you farm it for the rest of your life. Um, but when I'm talking about developer, I'm talking about the person who's actually going to get that house that needs to be hacked or renovated, who are going to buy that vacant lot, uh, clean it up, and at some point maybe try to build something on it, who are going to, you know, see that commercial building that was left behind on a corner or downtown, you know, acquire it and begin to renovate it. I like to think of us not only as developers, but we that farming idea. We're not in it to flip. Uh, we're in it to, you know, take time because sometimes if you were going to flip, you're not going to be able to get as much out of it as you put into it. Certainly my first project, I would have lost $30,000 if I sold it after I, I fixed it up. But I like to hmm. think of us as the conductors of a symphony. If you think about it, the conductor of a symphony basically has got this whole orchestra and you need every one of those instruments. But if you don't have the conductor, who maybe has a little bit of a script, right? A little bit of a, a, a music score that kind of has an idea of where they're going to bring those folks together. That's what we do. Uh, and if you get, you know, five, six, 10, 15, 20 conductors working in your underserved neighborhoods, and by the way, sharing the information 
uh, about, you know, who are the good contractors? Who are the bankers who will fund this? What and who do you need to go down to to meet with at the city to understand building codes and zoning? Uh, and, and, you know, those kinds of things, you know, we're building, you know, multiple orchestras, you know, that we're all working with throughout our neighborhoods within the city. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess what, one of the aspects that I'm getting at, like some of the folks that, that you would describe as developers might be somebody who's doing like what, one house a year, something like that, or a house renovation or a new house. Right. And I mean, you know, some people get started and they'll do a property. (laughs) That's not for me. Other people do a couple of houses here and there. Um, I would say some of our earliest developers, if you talk about somebody like uh, uh, Joni Downs, Joni's done nine houses over, I don't know, a decade and a half. Uh, if you're talking about uh, John and Brooke, John and Brooke have got five or six. Uh, if you're talking about Tim, Tim Wirechris has probably done about 25. Uh, a couple of former libra- or librarians, one of them just left her job six months ago, uh, Penny Hill, uh, uh, Jennifer Henneke and Sarah Hill, they've done 27 properties and now they've built a... Uh, bought a uh, half a block downtown uh, and they're redoing the Hmm. building woman by the name of Barbara Turner. Uh, Barbara uh, used to help her son in Chicago. Uh, She was actually born uh, in a sharecropper shack, built her first house when she was 23, but in her sixties, my age, she came back to South Bend and she's done a couple of rehabs and now she's trying to work with other people to do some more. These are our folk. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it's, what are there unifying threads at all when you know that that these people have character traits or things that they're interested? I mean, would you say that just a passion for helping their community is a is a unifying thread? I would think one of the big things is that that desire to want to help their community. Um, you know, the sort of the, the care um, and and also you know uh, a desire. Uh, you know, this is how they want to make a living. In some cases, now for those who who are going to take the time to become full time, you know then they're really more focused on, okay, I've got to build my buildings over time. Some of these folks were just doing it in their neighborhood out of desperation. Uh, and for some, like for, for, for John Horton, that's become his job. John has five or six properties. Um, he maintains and rents those properties, and that is his job. Uh, somebody like uh, uh, when I talk about Barbara, Barbara's done a couple of houses. Barbara, you know, had, had like me a career. And so, you know, she's got some retirement money. And so she's, you know, retired, but not retired, right? Barbara's not given up. So she's working to sort of build houses and making quality housing available in a, in, in a neighborhood that was uh, uh, redlined uh, and uh, uh, quite frankly, ripped off. Uh, and so yeah. she's making a difference. So how, what is the sort of the blend of people doing new construction versus renovation, would you say? Um, I would say that we're just starting to get into it. Um, when we talk about the idea of a flywheel, you know, uh, the flywheel applies to seven different elements, it applies to us. When you first start, typically speaking, you don't want to start with new building. It's very complex uh, and uh, you can get yourself in bigger trouble. Um, the ideal is to start small so that you don't risk too much and you learn as you go. But then you also have got to, you know, get the flywheel going in your farm, your neighborhood. Uh, as I said, in my neighborhood, you could not afford to buy a house, uh, build a house for what costs. Um, uh, uh, you couldn't afford to sell it for what it costs to build. Uh, and we're just now getting to a point where if you're willing to build and hold and rent, um, depending if you don't go too big or if you do duplex, triplex, you can make um, you can make it work that way, um, and so uh, it's kind of building up yourself, 
building up what you do in terms of resources, building up your neighborhood um, that allows us to move in that way. And then the ecosystem itself. Right now, uh, we've got, I'm the first one who got into doing small builds, but that's because I had some partners who were, you know, Dwayne Borkholder, Borkholder Building Supplies. You know, he created this new energy home. He wanted to build them. So he was helping me to do that. We now just got a guy by the name of uh, Tom Bard, who is going to be doing a duplex in my farm. I sold him one of my lots because he said, I want to build a duplex using new energy home uh, product. So now Tom is jumping into a new build in our neighborhood and it pencils out uh, if he lives in it uh, with a duplex. Uh, and uh, we've got a few others who are getting ready to move into that. It usually, you know, it takes a while to get anything going. And, and it yeah. seems to me that about six, seven years now into developing this small scale development ecosystem um, that we're starting to see a couple of us get into new builds. Most people are still doing the renovations. There was so much to renovate in South Bend that you could still do that. Now we're getting to the yeah. point where quite frankly, there's less of that available. So we're probably going to see more new build happening. So six or seven years on, like what are the, uh, you must be seeing some spinoff effects now in your neighborhood and other neighborhoods. Um, can you talk about like what the sort of the combined effect of all these people working it, in your community is? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, we're working all around uh, uh, in different neighborhoods in the city. Um, but my neighborhood that I know best is probably a good one for me to talk about, although uh, what Penny Hill is doing uh, downtown in an area south of downtown that, you know, uh, nothing had happened for years and years is pretty significant. But in my town, I'm working in, you know, my Portage Midtown, it's a two block area in the middle of the near Northwest neighborhood. Um, and there was no commercial on that block. And there hadn't been a new build house done since World War II. Uh, so we built the first two uh, new homes. They were tiny houses, 600 square feet, a little bit bigger, tiny, small. Um, uh, so we built those. But more importantly than that, that two block area that I told you about that used to be our commercial node and had completely disappeared. Well, now we've got a place called Botany, which is an urban garden store. Uh, and the guy's doing terrific there. And that was in one of my properties. He's going to buy it in the next year. We've got a place right next to it called the Porridge Collective. It's six female entrepreneurs who have come together. That was one of our properties we renovated. They've now got six businesses there. Our near Northwest neighborhood um, uh, community development uh, uh, corporation, CDC, they're the ones that led all of this for us. Um, they've done a hundred houses, but with support, you know, CDC support over mm -hmm. the last 20 years, but they also have a pay it forward coffee house and a local bookstore that is running out their place. Uh, so now all of a sudden we've got seven businesses where none used to be. Uh, and uh, we can see the impact uh, in terms of you can now buy and renovate a house in our neighborhood and you can uh, be able to um, do that, you know, it'll appraise for what it costs you to do that. And we're starting to maybe, as I say, get into the new builds. Yeah. Was that, it, it, you know, when you think about the commercial property that you renovated and you've got the great business in there now that's doing well and, and you'll probably sell them the building. Is that like a goal or an approach that you have as to yeah. ultimately sell those properties, have those building owners own them or the business owners own them? Yeah, we want we want all of our uh, our businesses, uh, business owners, our, our our entrepreneurs. We want them to become owners. We want them to become small scale developers because that way, when when push comes to shove, when the, when when COVID or the next recession hits, these people aren't going where. This is their life. 
Uh, and that's how our neighborhood stays strong. That's why we call it ecosystem. I do not want to be the only developer in my two block area. You know, right now, if yeah. I can, I've got, you know, Tom coming in, I've got Bennett and Sally who just bought one of my properties and we're going to work with them to get another couple. If Ben takes his, if, if Portage uh, uh, Collaborative does theirs, got five, six developers plus our near neighborhood, near Northwest neighborhood organization. That's, that's very strong. Uh, but let me just give you one other example of impact. Cause I told you the visual impact and it's like yeah. night and day, but we actually had uh, uh, Neil Heller from neighborhood workshop come in uh, uh, about four or five years ago and do a third party study, taking a look at what is the value and what is the taxes that are being paid by the properties that we we're working on. And it was about 25 properties altogether, 3.12 acres. When we first started in 2015, um, those properties, all of them together were paying $2,600 a year in taxes. Hmm. Wow. And people might go, how can that be? Well, that's the kind of neighborhood we were, right? I mean, vacant yeah. lots all over the place, abandoned buildings, abandoned houses. People don't pay taxes on that. Uh, yeah. And then uh, when Neil looked at what we were planning to do over the next 15 years, uh, it turns out that uh, he projects that by 2032, we'll be paying $300,000 a year in taxes on those same things. Now, people might say that's crazy. That's, that, that's video game stuff. But the fact of the matter is we are currently now five years into it, one third of the way. We have increased the tax we're paying by five times. We're paying almost $17,000 a year on what used to be 2,600. So that's one of the reasons that the city understood that they don't get the same bang for their buck. They can spend money on other types of consultants and supporting other types of development projects. They're not getting that kind of uh, tax impact bang for their buck. And that's just our, our uh, projects. That's not talking about what is the knock-on effect with everything around that has been depressed because of all these empty lots, untended, these vacant houses, and these buildings abandoned. Now that we bring those back, those are all increasing in their value, and people are investing there as well. Does this does the city or the other taxing jurisdictions do any kind of tax abatement as an incentive for any of this development? There can be some. We didn't get any incentive for anything for uh, my first five projects. Uh, the three renovations and the two new builds, there was no tax incentive, uh, rebate incentives. When we started to take on what we call the elephant in the room, a 56,000 square foot abandoned bakery building that had been you know, uh, deteriorating since 2012 and was really destroying the neighborhood. When we took that on, um, and we're right in the middle of starting to get that going, been at it for about a year and a half, two years now, um, then we were able to get some tax abatements. But quite frankly, to begin with, one product project at a time, you know, a, a renovation here, a renovation there, building one tiny house, they didn't, they didn't see it. Um, now, yeah. now they do see it. And in addition, you know, when it was Mike Keene professor that they knew, you know, is a good guy who could <laughs> teach sociology and sustainability studies and was helping them with their Green Ribbon Commission, you know, they would have looked at me and said, Mike, we're not going to support you because we know you, we love you. You don't know this. But after learning yeah. and developing in my own flywheel, you know, and doing stuff, you know, three, four years into it, they begin to say, okay, we can see something's happening here. And, you know, cities have to make choices about where they put their resources. They're underserved, they're underpaid, they don't have enough time, they don't have enough money. So what they're looking is where they can leverage. And when they see somebody, you know, in the neighborhoods, wherever it happens to be, making a difference, they're going to come around and help to support that. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, you mentioned the pre-approved uh, buildings for new construction um, that I know uh, Jen Settle and I think Jen um, uh, Graham. Yeah, great female yeah. network of architects do amazing work. Yeah. So what talk about how, how did that come together and uh, what's the impact been for new construction? I mean, I, I asked that because we're in discussions about that here in Kansas City. I've, I've, I've had this discussion numerous times with other, other cities that they think uh, it sounds like a cool thing to do. But how's it been working on the ground for, for you all? You know, it, we're so early into it. The plans have only been around for not really even two years since they've fully been released. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, we've got a duplex going up. Uh, I think there's been one or other two projects been built on the basis of it. Um, so I think I think the story's still out. I think that uh, they have done a couple of things already for certain. Um, they've given us an idea of what good design can look like. Uh, and uh, as we get people more built up in the ecosystem who can actually do new build, I think we're going to see more of that. But again, this idea of what we're doing, you know, is that flywheel? It's it's a it's a slow start. Like you're getting a crane train or a cruise ship mm -hmm. going. It takes a long time to get the momentum, and so I think you know it's going to be another three, four, five years before we see that. I think one of the challenges uh, that uh, uh, we've had to face, and I think we're trying to deal with and overcome now, is that for the most part they were designing houses that met some of our historic neighborhoods that were for the most part two story. Uh, four squares, 14 to 1600 square feet. Uh, and uh, we've also developed, they've also developed some duplexes. The challenge is, is that uh, with the appraisal gaps, we can't get the loans to build these houses in a lot of our neighborhoods. Uh, and hmm. some of these houses would not be appropriate uh, in, uh, uh, you know, some of our neighborhoods. So one of the things that we've seen most often, most recently is they're working on, I think like an 800 square foot unit, uh, and we also have to deal with, you know, how people see the neighborhood. Some people think that we have to build the neighborhoods back exactly the way they were. Well, when these neighborhoods were built, they were built for families of five, six, seven. Uh, yeah. And now uh, we know that the average household unit is two or less. And so we can't be building houses that are meant for family of five uh, and then expecting yeah. folks to be able to move into those and pay for those and maintain them. So there's some mismatches that we're all trying to work on in all the different sectors, the city, the CDCs, uh, Habitat for Humanity, uh, and us private developers, I think all have to rethink what does housing look like? What do our homing, our, our, our household units look like? And how do we begin to respond to those needs? And we maybe have to not let uh, the past completely dictate what we're doing now or going future. How are we going to change? Yeah, yeah, those are great. Great thoughts. Who, who? Tell me more about who are the people that are moving into the houses that you all have either renovated or built. Uh, are there, are they kind of a mixture demographically? Where, where are they coming from? South Bend or other places? Uh, it's a mixture. Uh, it's a mixture. I mean, uh, for us, we're building market rate, uh, and so market rate means that you know, uh, at two hundred twenty dollars a square foot, if I build a a, 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 a thousand square foot house, I've got to get somebody, you know, who come in at $220,000, which means they have to have a median household income of at least $70,000. Median household income in South Bend is 46,000. So, you know, we're, we're basically seeing um, young professionals uh, and uh, uh, 
empty nesters uh, who wanting to sort of downsize a bit, uh, maybe come back to the neighborhood. One of the things we've seen in South Bend is a fair number, not a huge, but a fair healthy number of people who've come from other communities to go to our colleges and universities stay in here. One of the more exciting mm -hmm. things is we've seen a lot of people coming back, people who grew up here, you know, went away from South Bend. You know, Indiana had a huge brain train. South Bend did, too. But now they're coming back particularly and, and you know, been out uh, and, and they see what's happening in South Bend and they think, wow, this is a place I can be. I, I know why they left because I came here, you know, to go to graduate <laughs> school. There was nothing here. I mean, there was really yeah. nothing here. Uh, but now it's it's a thriving town. You know, you can go to any kind of food you want. It's here. Uh, uh, you know, the concert scene, uh, the theater scene, uh, it's amazing. Um, uh, the sort of uh, uh, gamer scene, you know, it's happening. Uh, there's a budding club scene. Uh, it's a great community to raise a family. Uh, the bikes uh, and the bikeways, it's, it's really just a place where you can be you know, it used to be if I want to get Thai food, I'd have to travel to Chicago. And I remember when I go to conferences, mm -hmm. I love Thai food. Anytime I went to an academic conference, I'd go to a Thai restaurant because it wasn't around South Bend. We got two or three now. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So tell me about what's what's some of the stuff. Obviously, this is an enormous career change for you, even though I know you had an interest in sustainability and everything. You know, I can't help but wonder, like, what are some of the things that have surprised you? Uh, what, you know, there's great opportunities. You've got a ton of excitement, enthusiasm for what you're doing, but what are like surprises and challenges that you've, you know, you felt just personally getting into all this? Um, I think, you know, learning not to make these absolute statements, you know, first of all, when you're an academic, right, you know, the business world is kind of out there. It might even be kind of the, the enemy, the evil, right. You know, we're not about making money. We're about, you know, teaching people and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, so sort of having to understand uh, that if you're going to do something and, 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 and I, you know, I'm a privileged white guy. I had a good academic career. You know, I've got a decent retirement, but I'm not trying to do this for myself. I'm trying to do do things in such a way that other people can replicate it, um, which means that I have to do something in a way that is going to, you know, make enough money to pay me and pay others. Now, right now, what's happening is the money I'm making is going into equity because we keep on plugging it in. Um, uh, but one of the things for me was to have to understand that, to have to understand if I want to do good, I still have to make enough money to pay for my time, to pay for my materials and pay for everybody else. And if I'm going to get investments, uh, pay you know for my money. And like I said, I said, I'll never be, uh, I'll never take out a loan. Well, I, I've learned differently. Uh, but if you're going to take out a loan, you know what? You got to make uh, your rents work. And a lot of people in the neighborhood think, oh, this is magic. Hey, Mike, let's turn that big bakery into a gym for some local kids to play in. I'd love to do that. But at so many thousand square feet, who's going to pay the five, six, seven thousand dollars a month to do that? And if we don't have somebody who can do that, then we, you know, we go bankrupt and this place goes back to where it was. So that was one of the things is trying to understand how the private sector works. Um, and what I think is, is that what we need is the private and the public sector working together because the university, we sit there and we talk about stuff, we're paid, we create ideas, we give them away, but we don't think about their economic impact. In the private sector, people are so damn busy just trying to pay their bills and make a buck, they don't have a time to dream and, 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 and think about and share information as much. 
for me, I'm in this kind of weird place. I'm not really an academic. I'm not really in a private sector business person. I'm sort of in this middle place. Um, but what I found out is that's the place we need to be. We need these two groups to understand. We need to have that time to be able to think. And we need to give away and share what we have, not charge for everything. On the other hand, we need to make sure we get paid a decent amount of money so that we can also pay people we're working with a decent amount of money. So I see these two sectors need to come together. And then if we can add you know, the not-for-profit college, universities, not-for-profits, the public sector, government, and the private sector, it's when those three come together that makes a difference. Um, another thing for me was, you know, uh, just having a sense of humor and being able to sort of keep calm. Now, I've always been a person who always kind of stepped a little further than I probably should have. Uh, and so <laughs> that's all right. You know, I, as, as long as I can kind of get my breath in, that pushes me. But you got to learn how to get rid of your stress. I mean, I don't... I don't spend any time curled up on my couch anymore, uh, but I have uh, uh, because, you know, things happen. Uh, the other thing that was hard was to learn how to get good partners. Uh, I've had a few partners that um, they just didn't work out. Uh, and it was because we didn't have the same values um, and we didn't know each where we're going. And it really is important to sort of know that your values are in the same place uh, and know that your risk uh, factors are the same. I, I, I've got a pretty high risk tolerance. And what we talk about when we talk about small scale investment is whether you're young, middle aged or older, what we say is don't invest any more than you can afford to lose. So one of the ways I stop, keep myself from getting too nervous, I've got a significant chunk of my retirement invested in this, but I was lucky enough that I could invest that if that were to disappear overnight and it won't because it's real estate. But if it were my life, my wife's life, you know, uh, would not change. You know, I'd feel stupid about it. I wouldn't be happy about it. But what that means is when the hard time comes, you know, I'm not, you know, like a rat trying to get off the ship and I'm going to try to take care of my partners. Well, my partners are going to try to do the same thing. Uh, we all are sort of going slow to go faster uh, and to sort of uh, minimize risk profile. That means you're not going to become a millionaire or a billionaire doing this, you know, overnight, uh, anytime quick. But it also means that you can make a difference. You can make a good living. Uh, if you take the time to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible thing, Mike, because honestly, most people in your position would probably say I've had this nice career. I've got a retirement set up and I'm going to uh, just take some time and enjoy myself and relax and do, you know, pursue hobbies, travel, whatever, whatever the case may be and not decide to like roll the dice and, and, uh, invest and, and almost create a second career for yourself doing something that most people would consider to be really, really risky. Yeah. And, and what I'd like to say is that I want to disabuse anybody of the notion that I did this intentionally or knowing ahead of time what was happening. Because when yeah. that happens, people take a look at me or they take a look at Bernice or they take a look at Monty and they say, oh, my God, you guys are geniuses. No, we're not. You know, Bernice calls herself a, a girl with a dollar in her dream. And she just had to do something in her neighborhood. Monty started out of desperation where he lived and grew up and didn't want to leave out and started small and over time slowly developed. I started because I wanted to help a guy build a house, but I was in a neighborhood that I couldn't get anybody to rent it or buy it if I didn't help fix it up. And then what happens is as your capacity grows and opportunity comes along, you say, well, there's another vacant lot. Oh, there's another house that needs to be done. Six years, they haven't been able to get tax credits to do that bakery you know, okay, that's got to be done. Uh, and so 
for me, it really happened incrementally myself. And that's the whole value of incrementalism. When I talk to people, I don't talk to them. What about, you know, what building do you want to do? What do you want to do here? What I say is, look, uh, there's a woman here in town called Sarah uh, Stewart. She created something called Unity Gardens. She started in 2008 with a half of a lot in the city growing food that anybody could pick and feed themselves. And people said, Sarah, if you do that, they're going to steal your food and they're going to kick your rear end. Well, Sarah said they can't steal my food because that's the whole idea. It's free. And after six or eight weeks of her literally carrying 50 gallons of water in her truck a day to water that food, if you touch Sarah, they kick your rear end. Now, uh, 15 years later, she's just finished construction of a $2 million uh, educational building on a two-acre Unity Garden, we call it, um, that the city has supported uh, with the land, but they raised the money. And if Sarah hadn't started with that one garden, she didn't know what she was going to do. You know, for me, the way I say it is I started because I was going to help a guy build a house and I had a, I had a flower shop that needed to be renovated. And so we bought it and we started. And because my drywall guys did a really crappy job, I learned how to caulk. And so, you know, I say, what's your little garden? What's your tube of caulk? What is that first thing you can do in the next two to four or five weeks that makes a difference? Edge your sidewalks. Get two neighbors together and clean up a vacant lot. Put a bench in it. There's any number of things you can do. That starts your flywheel going. And if you don't want to be the developer, that's fine. Just start to clean up. Find somebody else. Support them. You get a couple people together and other people, particularly these days, are looking for goodness they can be part of. And they will come. Yeah. Absolutely. Very well said. So I, one thing I have to ask about is you kind of started on this journey by trying to help uh, build the net zero uh, yeah. house. How, how do you think about uh, that uh, concept now or how have you been able to integrate some of those green energy principles into your projects or has there, has there been an overlap or at all or? Oh, yeah. I mean, a couple of interesting overlaps. The first overlap I never expected is kind of a big, broad one. When I started teaching sustainability, I ran into a group called The Natural Step. And this was an organization that had started in in the mid-1990s before anybody knew what sustainability was. But they had four basic principles based on the laws of physics and stuff like that. Very sophisticated stuff. But they had basic steps you could teach to anybody, you know, in a couple of hours. And their whole point was this is not judgmental and non-directive. Here are the things you can do that if you follow these principles, then you can become more sustainable. And you're not going to get judged for not doing it. We're not going to tell you what to do, because if I tell you what to do, then once you've got your uh, your uh, uh, carry-on tote and your little uh, uh, cup you carry around, you don't know what to do next. Uh, but if I give you some principles, like I got to reduce the amount of uh, uh, fossil fuels I take from the Earth's core, there's any number of ways I can do that. So what happens is you also don't try to do it all at once, one step at a time. So here I have been teaching what I now understand was an incremental approach to sustainable development. And, you know, one of the companies that started with that, Ikea, they started 20 years ago to make one couch that was sustainable. They're one of the most sustainable companies in the world now. They started one couch. And so then I meet, you know, Monty and Jim and Bernice, and all of a sudden they're talking about incrementalism. And I'm thinking incrementalism and sustainability go like this. And the most sustainable thing you can do is renovate an existing building or fill in an existing lot and use the existing sewer and water lines. So there was a complete overlap at that level. Now, with the housing business, what has happened is 
one of the things that we do is we've got our lots, but we're only building using that system. Now, other people in our, our ecosystem aren't, aren't, aren't doing that. You know, they build what they want. We've got you know, no problems with that. But for us, we're trying to learn how to build this better and use it more. Uh, and so we've, we've built in our farm, uh, we've built two uh, tiny houses. But uh, on that first uh, uh, set of vacant lots I was looking at, that first block that had seven houses missing, Habitat owned three of the lots. We had three and Habitat had another three. Uh, and uh, what happened... Uh, is we went to Habitat and they said, well, hey, Mike, would you like to buy these from us? I said, no, I've already got a commitment to buy one. I'm not going to be able to sell. How about this? We'll help you build uh, a house using our system. And uh, my uh, partner gave them a, a, a bit of a deal, uh, a discount on the material package and taught them how to use that system. So the first five houses that actually went up in our neighborhood were Habitat houses. And those are the highest performing houses in the state of Indiana. Uh, one of them in particular, hmm. because... It was not only a net zero house with solar, but because it was Habitat, Carrier uh, donated ground geothermal system, which is, is, is uh, you don't need that. A mini split will do you in this. Um, and that's, that's a Habitat family living in a house uh, uh, there. So that was five we did there. And now we've got, as I say, uh, one of our uh, uh, newbies to our uh, small scale development here in South Bend, although he did commercial development out in California, Tom is building the duplex. So now what we're looking at is the triplex. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to show how you can build out missing middle housing uh, using our net zero system. Um, and we're beginning to get more interest because just like the iPhone, right? Nobody knew what it was. Um, uh, it took a long time for people to start to adapt, but now they are adapting it. But also along the way, you've got to develop it and innovate. So that's kind of uh, where we're working at uh, uh, together. So those two have come together um, really well. Uh, when we built our tiny house, 160 square foot house, we built two of them called the artist because we designed the original one for an artist. Um, and that got put in our, our local um, home show. We won best of show. Our $160,000, 600-square-foot lofted net zero home beat out million-and-a-half-dollar lake houses. And the main reason is it's a cool design, kind of industrial, and the energy efficiency. Interesting. Um, so talk to me a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing with uh, Monty and Bernice uh, and all now with Neighborhood Evolution. Uh, um, I guess you are now trying to help people in other communities and, and uh, share your lessons learned and, and help them along the way in their own place? Yeah, well, like I say, um, if I had not met them, I wouldn't have been doing this. I, I, you know, I probably would have helped that guy build a house. I might have renovated that building. Maybe I might have renovated another building, but I, I, I don't see, I, I don't know that I would have gone much further than that because uh, I knew enough to get myself in trouble, but I didn't know enough how to you know, dig myself out of the hole and continue to replicate. And, and, and they really uh, came with a methodology that Monty now has, has conceptualized as the 12-step process, that, and that's what we go around and teach. I, I think some, I, I represent two things. I mean, first of all, um, after I met them, I started going anywhere I could to see them again. So I heard about the boot camps. I went to Albuquerque and, and I did a boot camp down there. And then they were doing some work up in uh, Albion. I went there and then they were over in Detroit and I went there at one point, you know, anytime Michi Monty would come to Michigan, he'd fly into South Bend and I'd say, Monty, I'll drive you along. You pay for my hotel. I'll drive you wherever you got to go. So you don't have to rent a hmm. car. So we kind of joked that I, that, that this professor was stalking him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so I learned all this stuff and then, bringing those folks to South Bend, 
I kind of became a proof of concept because it was like, okay, here's somebody who hadn't done this stuff, who wasn't a developer, who had no experience. And look what happened in just a period of five or six years. Um, but I think the one thing I can say that I helped bring to the table, and that is what had been happening when they were going to various places is they weren't having the happy hour the first night they got there. They weren't bringing people together in the neighbor, in, in, in the uh, uh, in the uh, living rooms and then together. So I think I helped sort of bring the idea of getting people together. And so what we found out was that this form of small scale development uh, that we're talking about, you know, aligning uh, the cities, uh, aligning the developers and aligning the financial community, which is what uh, Monty and Jim and Bernice had done first uh, working with incremental development and now um, neighborhood evolution, um, that we could bring those together. And the one thing that we do is we don't just do teaching. You know, we're not just teaching folks. We, we will only work with a community where they're going to bring us into the community. They have champions uh, like Bernice or me uh, or Jim or Monty. You know, there's a champion there. They can connect with other champions in the public, private, not-profit sectors. And we help their flywheel getting started, not only with their developers, but with their city and with their ecosystem. Because it's only if you bring these people together, start to identify the people already doing the work, begin to change the playing field, create the canvas that they can work on, and then help get folks together, both in the profit, not-profit and financial sectors, connecting with one another. You get that going, and eventually it becomes like an ecosystem. That's the whole idea. It's self-directing, yeah. it's self-actualizing, it's self replicating. Yeah. I mean, Mike, there's just so much about this that I, you know, I love and it's, um, uh, it's just inspiring to see. I, I think so much is, you know, about in, in a bigger picture, it's like helping people recreate local economies uh, and especially local economies that have been devastated, you know, over yeah. many and, years. And so, so think about that, right? We're not talking about Rockefeller, right? That's not what we're trying to do. What we're talking about is Jill Smith, who's going to open a little bakery on the corner. And how many Jill and Joe Smiths uh, uh, you know, are out there? How many Tamikas are out there? How many Jose's are out there? And the folks who built our community, they were not geniuses. They were just people who got up every day, put right. one step in front of the other, started small, and took advantage of opportunity. That's what we are. We're nothing different yeah. from that. What the thing that sort of makes me sometimes frustrated is that we get so much attention for having done so little. Right? <laughs> and it tells us that, you know what, folks, we've got to go back and create this in every community. And again, it's not right. rocket science. We can help you get there faster, maybe. But the fact of the matter yeah. is every single community in this country was built the same way, except for the most recent suburban ones that were drawn on a right. drawing board by engineers and operators. Any city that's more than 40 or 50 years old has got this DNA. So look to your history and just did with those folks that nobody else knows. You know who they are, but they're not famous. They're not geniuses. It's there. It's our brothers, our sisters, our moms, our dads, our grandmothers, grandpas. Those are the folks who did this. Yeah, no doubt. I've used kind of that point in presentations before, just like even in my own city talking yeah. about how much our city grew from say 1880 to 1910, which is unbelievable explosive growth, you know, amazing neighborhoods built everywhere. And they were all built basically by local people. And, and it you know, couldn't have been done by a single person. Yeah. 
It couldn't yeah, be done by exactly. a single person. If it would, it'd look crappy. It'd be, it would be awful. Yeah. But, you know, the work you've been doing, you know, is, 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 is really important too. you know, talking about um, house hacking and, you know, working, uh, you know, and talking about some of the pink zone and other sorts of things. Uh, once again, what is that? It's just like what we're talking about. Yeah. It's back to the future, folks. Let's recapture what we used to do. This is what people did. They built a house or they had a store. They lived above. They moved out. They rented above. They built a house. It was a small one. Yeah. They added on a room. You know, this is how it happened. My grandparents' house started that way. It was one room with a kitchen yeah. and a bedroom, and eventually they added to <laughs> it. You know, that's the way we did this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 like I said, it's really inspiring. There's this great video that you all, I think, worked with Strong Towns on to produce that came out recently. Um, I think about a 10 minute or so video about focusing on South Bend, uh, just incredible production quality shows the story. Uh, I mean, I was so inspired. I shared it on Twitter and got really salty about it and, and got, a lot of, <laughs> got a lot of crap for what I said. But, you know, it just, it, it, I, I think the larger point was just that, you know, I felt like the things that you were doing are really showing, uh, I wish more young people would look at places like South Bend, would look at smaller communities and see these as places to lean into and have incredible uh incredible lifestyles that they could create for themselves by really devoting themselves to a place and helping, you know, manifest that into something bigger. And I think that's, that's part of what you are really showing uh, to people that they can do in communities all over. Uh, so I, mean, whole, I really appreciate that. Yeah. The whole point of the small, of uh, the strong towns video was exactly that, to, that they're looking at a, a, a younger demographic, younger than me, i.e., you know, twenties, yeah. thirties uh, 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 or even forties and saying, Folks, you can do this. And there's a large number of folks yeah. who want to do that. And we just want to say that, you know, all it takes is one step at a time. You don't have to make a genius. You find out what is your tube of caulk? What is your garden box? What is that sidewalk you can uh, edge with a couple of other folks? You start with that. And when you're looking back five years from now, you're going to be amazed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many people who are looking for some form of like meaning uh, in their own lives and in whatever respect, and not to say that this is like substitute for, for all of that, but leaning into a place and devoting yourself to uh, a community is one way that you can really find a lot of purpose uh, in life. Uh, and, and so I, I congratulate or all in, of you in South yeah, Bend or in a second show us that as I have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, Mike, uh, the, uh, let's wrap it up there. I do uh, like to ask people a final question on my podcast. This is the Messy City Podcast. So uh, is there a community that, uh, a neighborhood, a city that you think of when I talk about a messy city, which is something maybe a little more organic or bottom up in nature, someplace that that you've experienced that you really uh, want to talk about or, or enjoy or think of for inspiration? Um, I think more, like you say, I think of... Um neighborhoods one of them i think of about quite frankly is is a little far-fetched but it's vienna uh my wife was mm -hmm. born in berlin we've got uh, friends and quasi family over there and what i love about that city is you can just start to walk uh and it yeah. is just from one place to the next one neighborhood to the next it's just a walkable city and it's just a great place to be that's terrific. Yeah. I, I think I have actually never been to Vienna, which is 
surprising in many ways because I've been, I think, all around it and never actually been in Vienna. But birthplace of the coffee house, you know, if you know, if, if that's where coffee Absolutely. house was born, you know, it had to be a great place. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, Mike, thanks so much uh, for taking the time uh, to do this, and uh, look forward to talking again. Kevin, thank you so much, and thank you for all you do. You're helping create a movement in this country that's really important, and the most important thing we can do is have people like you that can help uh, not only contribute to how we do it through your hacking catalog, but also to help people know that they can do it too by getting the word out. So thank you very much as well. Well, you're very kind. (laughs) Thank you. All right, take care, Mike. 